morning once again, Redeemer. Uh, I'd like for, to invite you to turn, tap, swipe your Bibles to James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. As you turn there, I want to remind you where we've been in the book of James for the past several weeks. James has been making his case of how the church can present itself as the real deal. To be a real church, a real Christian, is to be one that is set apart from the world, that receives the good news of the gospel, does the word and hears the word, loves their neighbor as themselves by not showing partiality. So as James now pivots from real, you know, to, to sort of parsing out what is real to fake in terms of Christianity, he's now going to talk about in these next several verses what is alive faith and what is dead faith. Alive faith and dead faith. Now, I want to warn you, this passage that we're going to look at today divides denominations, churches, religions. It's been debated and redebated for over five centuries, has led to many misunderstandings, controversies, deaths of ministers, and sort of all sorts of slander and gossip that is around this text here today. So, Anything could happen as we read today's text this morning. All right. So with that, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. How exciting. Let's go to the word of God. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and that faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray together. Father, let us seek out the truths of your word today. And with that, take this this amazing message of the transformative power of faith and live it, no matter where we are, that, that our faith as a church will be one that is alive. God, be with the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So... All of my English majors and all of my English vocabulary enthusiasts, today is your day. Today is a fun day for us because we get to talk about contronyms. Many of us might know what a synonym is, two words that are alike, and antonyms, two words that are opposite. 
But a contronym is a word that has two definitions that are completely opposite of one another. Even more confusing is when they're used in a sentence. For example, take the contronym word off. If I tell you that you should turn off the car alarm because it is going off, you will realize that I'm using the word to mean two contradictory things. Or the word left. If I look into a party and say, who's left here? You'll want to know on whether I'm talking about the people who left the room or the people who are left in the room. If I've sanctioned a law that sanctioned a product, you might be confused on whether I allowed it or I banned it. And perhaps the most famous new contronym of all, Merriam-Webster Dictionary 2013, famously turned the word literally into a contronym where now literally can now both mean the literal meaning and it can also mean that it's a figurative meaning of what you think that it means. I am literally serious as this is literally blowing my mind. So, today's text deals with contronyms of three words that have been interpreted and misinterpreted in the history of the church. Faith, works, and justify. And James uses these words in ways that we have to be careful of here because if we give the wrong definition, we will wind up, we will wind up believing something that isn't true about the gospel. And therefore, living out that reality and therefore doing something that's going to actually take away from the work of Christ on the cross. So, we need to talk about, in the way that Scripture and James is using the word faith here in this passage. Right? So, James begins here in verse 14 by talking about someone who has faith but does not have works. And, and talking about wondering whether such faith could save that person. His conclusion at the end of verse 17 is a resounding no. Actually, it's, it's more than just a no. He's calling that faith of that person, and here's how he's defining faith, a dead faith, which is in the absence of works. So the first contronym is, re- is recognizing that there's a distinction that Scripture is making between a faith that is active, real, living, you know, all the things that we've been talking about over the last several weeks, right? And, and then this contronym of a, of a dead Fake, passive faith that James wants the church community to rid itself from. So the faith that he's referencing here isn't the kind of saving faith that we read about in all other passages of Scripture, in Paul, in Romans, or in Jesus when he's talking with the centurion. James is speaking of a, of a cold, fake faith that sort of, you know, fake religious people hold on to that don't show any evidence that they live out what they believe. This faith is the kind of faith that believes that thinking about the relationship is the relationship. But any single person with a crush will tell you having a crush on the person is not the same as having a relationship with the person. All right? As a, a single guy for the first 35 years of, this, of his life, I can't even begin to tell you how true that is for me in my life. Okay? Um, thinking about a relationship isn't the same as having a relationship. One is purely in the mind, and the other is lived out. One is inactive, the other is alive. One is saying things like, go in peace, be warm and filled, while the other actually does the hard work of providing shelter and food to the needy. 
And so James here is pointing out to the reality that these sort of middle and passive verbs like go, be warmed, and fill simply won't do in the Christian life. James likes his faith like he likes his verbs. He wants them active. It's not enough to say that you understand your responsibilities as a Christian and that you have a thoughtful, deep, mindful way of expressing that responsibility. True, active, living faith is lived out. And by the way, this is the only real faith that exists. Anything else is dead. So let's just pause here and remember the life of Jesus. Okay? Jesus was a man who said great things, didn't he? But he didn't just stop there. He lived great things. So think about some of the things that Jesus said. He professed that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. He asked us to pray for our enemies. He talked at length about the warnings of fake religion and about people turning the temple into a den of robbers. He speaks of those who are imprisoned, those who are hungry, those who are in need of clothing and shelter, and says that whatever you do for the least of these, that you will have done to him. He talks about this, the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, about how he had different People are the ones who are to be loved, those who hold different political, religious, ethnic views that you do are the ones that we need to reach out to the most. Jesus talked the biggest game possible. But he didn't just talk about it, did he? He lived it. Jesus loved his neighbors deeply, even those pagan Gentiles that the Jews wanted nothing to do with. Jesus prayed for his enemies on the cross, asking for his Father to forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus sets the imprisoned captives free by releasing those who are in bondage to sin, you and I, free from the curse. Jesus fed the hungry. He fed the 5,000, and just in case you weren't paying attention, he feeds 4,000 right after that. Jesus welcomes the leper and heals them. Jesus says he's preparing a home, a shelter for us in heaven. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, meets her where she is, and offers her living water and the bread of life. And just in case you didn't get the message about Jesus saying that we need to give up our lives, Jesus gives up his own life on the cross for us so that we might have redemption in his name. Jesus lived every part of what he believed. And he called you and I to do the same as the body and bride of Christ. So because of this, our scripture passage today is calling us to see that something that we tend to do often in the evangelical church, we tend to separate faith and works. And James is saying you cannot do that. And a live faith cannot separate itself from works, as though the two were these completely distinct, separate entities. It makes both of them dead. Dead works, apart from faith, is a moralism that cannot save. And dead faith, apart from works, is a worthless piety. You will always live out what you truly believe. And true saving faith cannot be separated from true living. That isn't true faith at all. 
is just simply true proclamation. True proclamation cannot save you. You cannot save yourself with true proclamation. And this isn't how we think about our relationships today at all. That mere truth is sufficient enough to the grounds of a healthy relationship. Um, I want to adapt an analogy from uh, the pastor Francis Chan. Um, imagine if, if my wife, Paige, my lovely wife, says to me, you know, John, do you love me? And I respond to her by just simply stating true things about our marriage. All right, so can you imagine that? Like, you know, my wife says, do you love me? And I respond by saying, well, you know, we got married on April 17th, 2020. Do you love me? Well, you know, I once said that I loved you very much at a youth retreat, and I even went up to the very front of the stage and, and said how much I love you. Do you love me? Oh, you know, Paige, of course I love you. You are the mighty runner, wonderful physician's assistant, princess of the morning alarm clock. You know, do you love me? Well, you know, do you know that there are four words for the love in Greek, right, that, that, that mean different things in different contexts? Like, none of those things are, are, are they're true statements. They're, they're, they're true proclamations. But none of those things mean the relationship. This is the danger of believing that a rightful proclamation means that you have true faith. This is what makes James's verse so stirring on this when he says that even demons have the right proclamation, that God is one. And you know what? Even the demons respond with greater fear than we do, but here's the catch. They are still demons. They are still acting demonically. The knowledge of God and even the knowledge of rightful Christian behavior, doctrine, and practice, the knowledge of these things cannot merit anything else to you other than the fact that you are just close enough to be a demon. So practical application on this. It is not enough to slap the label of Christian onto something and call it Christian simply because you've made the right profession. It's certainly a condition, it's certainly a prerequisite, right? We need rightful proclamation. Don't, don't, hear, you know, don't hear me say that we don't, right? Um, but it is not enough of a foundation unless it is a lived-out reality. It is not enough for you to say that I am a Christian businessman or I am a Christian lawyer and then do bad law and bad business. It is not enough to claim that you say I believe in family values and then live your life in your family as though none of those things were true. It is not enough for you to have a Christian title and say the right things about how Christians should live and not have that fleshed out in your own practice in life. To quote the great reformer Martin Luther, the Christian shoemaker isn't a Christian shoemaker because he put crosses on shoes. The Christian shoemaker is a Christian shoemaker because he makes good shoes. Rightful proclamation is not sufficient enough without right praxis. You cannot divide faith and works and pretend such a faith will save you because you are taking the wrong contronym of true faith. You have chosen a faith that can't save instead of the faith that will save. This is why James goes further into examples of what he means by this in verse 20 to 26, right? James is anticipating a lot of questions, so he wants to give examples, all right? So he gives two biblical examples of, of understanding what true Active, alive faith looks like. 
And so we're going to go in deep into this because he is not trying to contradict what the rest of the Scripture says about faith alone being to save. Okay? Rather, it's about how James is defining the word justify. James writes that Abraham believed in God's promise that he would be the father of nations, that it was through Abraham's line that the kingdom of God would be established, and that God's covenant promises to him would be fulfilled. Okay, so far so good, right? So much that Abraham believed this, that even when he was offering up his one and only son Isaac on the altar, he was demonstrating that even though he had no idea how God was going to establish the kingdom through him if he had no sons, he trusted in God enough that he would obey the command to do it anyways. All right, so this famous story from Genesis, right? The result of Abraham's faith was a work of trust to give up Isaac, his precious son, so that through faith in God, God would bring about his salvation and his purpose through him. But I want you to see the dilemma that Abraham is faced here. He knows that God has promised that his kingdom would be established, and yet it would appear that God is asking him to sacrifice the only means by which a kingdom would arrive. Abraham has a choice. Does he respond in faith and trust in God to justify him, or does he try to take matters into his own hands and try to find another way to be justified? Now, we know in James chapter uh, 2, verse 23, what Abraham did. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, okay, so far, so good. But then we come into the brick wall that is verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we as Protestants, we go, oh, hold up, wait a minute, right? And we start almost too quickly saying, let's go to Paul, right? Let's go to Paul. Let's not deal with this phrase here, and let's just go straight to Paul when Paul is talking about by faith alone and Christ alone, right? And, and, and here's the kicker that we need to deal with in this verse. The only time the phrase by faith alone is even in your Bibles is right here in verse 24, the very place where James appears to be saying that it is not by faith alone that we have justification. Ra'o. All right, what do we do with that? All right. How do we make sense of this? How do we understand this? Is James speaking a gospel of law to us, or is he speaking to us a gospel of grace? So, I want us to, to, to kind of dive into this, because it is no hyperbole when I say that how you interpret James 2.24 determines whether or much about whether or not you are a Christian who believes in grace or you're a person who's trying to justify themselves by works. And so we have to dive into this. You see, taken in isolation, that word justify and how you translate it causes you to live out what you believe. And we must be careful because, as, as the phrase goes, all theology, what you believe about God, leads to doxology, how you live towards God. Now, a classic Roman Catholic summary of the definition of the word justify, and this is taken, this is their words, not mine, taken from the Catechism of the Catholic Church claims that, and listen carefully, this. Justification isn't something that happens just at the beginning of the Christian life. 
It happens over the course of the Christian life that Christians, and, and here's their key phrase here from their decree on justification. You can look it up. That Christians increase in that justice received and are further justified. That a Christian must be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will to obtain the grace of justification. What is interesting here is that Catholic doctrine says, and by the way, they are very quick to say, so don't use this when you're talking to a loving Catholic, right? Don't, the Catholics say, we don't believe in faith and works. Catholics will, will, will say that's the first thing they do. We do not believe in faith and works as a part of justification. I mean, it's not even in their statement here. But if you look at their very definition, you will see that when we're talking about a person needs to increase in their justification by their own will, then it is no longer saying that we are declared not guilty by the blood of Christ, but rather that the judge is waiting and looking at you to declare, to see if you're really not guilty. When the Reformation happened 503 years ago, the realization came upon Martin Luther and those that would follow him, John Calvin, John Knox, Zwingli, and others, was that this view of justification, this classic uh, Catholic catechism view, would lead to a set of behaviors where a person would perpetually not lean upon the grace of Christ, but rather on their performance. That they would have to feel that they were saved, that they were doing enough to feel the sense that they were saved, but they were never, could never, ever be fully assured that they had been redeemed by the grace of Christ. And then they started reading the whole of Scripture that it clearly showed that it was by grace through faith that they were saved. Galatians 2.16, that we are not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And that, as the Reformers were, were reading this and thinking about this, they realized that we need to kill any thought in our minds that we are made righteous in God's sight by the things that we do. That the most liberating thing that the Christian could know was that Performance does not save you, but the performance of a perfect Savior does. So, John Calvin, speaking at the height of the Reformation, says this to his critics. Search through all the defined scriptures that we possess. If the blood of Christ alone purchases satisfaction, reconciliation, ablution, how dare we presume to transfer so great an honor to our works, or just in plain speak. Why did Jesus need to die if we still needed more to do in order to obtain our justification? If we still needed more, do you see how exhausting this would be on your souls? This is why in our confessing documents, the Westminster Catechisms fought against this idea and said that justification is an act of God's free grace. Not a work, but an act of God's free grace and not a work of our own spirit. That the very heart of the gospel, it proclaims to us the good news that no matter the depths of our inadequacies and our failures, that for those of us who cling to Jesus for our righteousness, he holds us firm in our hands. He will not let us go because he has clothed us in his righteousness and wipes the stain of our sin so fully that we cannot add to it. And instead only to receive it and worship this holy God who gives it to us. 
I want to, to, to just say this as clearly as I can. Because I know that for so many of you, you wake up each morning and wonder whether or not you've done enough for God. And I want to free you from that. I know some of you are so worried about your Christian friends and your Christian neighbors that you're worried, are they you know, at the right level of grace? Have they earned it enough so that God would be pleased with them? And I want you to free yourself from that burden. Friends, do you see the good news that Christ is enough? He is just and the justifier. But we're still left in James 2.24. How do we make sense of the language here using it on its own terms? So let me give you some ways not to make sense of it. Um, as great as Martin Luther was on his theology of justification, he was not really great on how to use this verse in James. Famously, Martin Luther thought that the, the epistle of James, what he called an epistle of straw, meaning that he thought it was sort of a second-tier New Testament book of Scripture. Uh, that, that, that's not right. That's not right. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, so, so Luther is rightfully critiqued in Reformed circles that, that you can't just throw out James 2, 24. Um, so we also, like I said before, can't go t- too quickly to Paul. As though we're saying, woohoo, woo-hoo, don't, don't pay attention to James over here. You know, go to Paul, go to Paul. He's right on this, right? Uh, we can't do that. Uh, we as Bible-believing, Scripture-affirming Christians need to deal with the text that is in front of us. And so how? And it all comes back to contronyms. Faithful Christians and biblical scholars note that there are different definitions of justification in Paul and justification in James. While still keeping all of Scripture intact and in harmony together. James, when he says justified by works in verse 24, is talking about the end product proof of saving faith. Not justified by works as part of your salvation. See the difference? Right? Paul, when he's talking about justification and faith, he's talking about this beginning declaration of Christ's righteousness and the forgiveness of sins that is granted to you by faith alone. James is talking about justified by works as the proof, the outworking, the fruit of salvation, the finished result of what faith produces in a believer. And he is not saying that you are justified by continual works, that works somehow must continue on in order for you to remain justified. All right? So in other words, Paul and James have different perspectives on the exact same truth which they would wholeheartedly agree together on. Now, how do we know this? Because look at James' example of Abraham. Because Abraham's faith in the story that was suddenly gra- uh, Abraham's faith in the story wasn't just something that was suddenly granted to him because he sacrificed Isaac on the altar. Rather, it was because Abraham believed in God that he would then respond, and the fruit of that would be the sacrificing of his son Isaac. In other words, The reason why James places this Abraham story is to show the end result of justification, not how someone receives justification in the beginning. That's the contronym. This is how we respond lovingly to those who think that Paul and James are in disagreement with one another. You see, Paul is speaking about how justification begins, the declaration of not guilty, right? James is using justification to talk about the end result. 
So let me give you some analogies here because I think that would be helpful for us. So since we have many, many uh, medical practitioners, students right, in this room, uh, the biblical scholar Craig Bloomberg says in his excellent commentary this way, Paul is dealing with the medical practice of obstetrics, right? how new life begins, right? how the Christian uh, is, is, is born. James, however, is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, how, how the Christian life grows and matures and ages. Uh, for all my botanists here, right? Uh, maybe a, a plant analogy, right? Paul is talking about the root foundation of justification, and James is talking about the harvest of justification, the, the fruit of it. Uh, my athletes, Paul is talking about how the Christian race starts by, by God's grace through faith. James is speaking on the promise that those who are in the race will reach the end of the race through God's work in their lives, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help you guys to, to, to capture as much as you possibly can around this idea because you cannot divorce faith and works to separate things. That's unbiblical. But we need to understand how James is applying justified by works here in this passage. That justification will lead to my sanctification. That Christ in me is making me more every day, more and more and more into the new creation. And that this fruit will evidence itself in a way that doesn't save my soul. That's, that's Christ's work. But the work gives greater glory to the saving work of Christ in me. And this is why James ends this passage here by talking about Rahab. Rahab. How many of you have ever wondered, why does James move from Abraham to Rahab? What's, what's, what's going on here? Why, why move from this father of the faith figure of the people of God to a prostitute from the pagan land of Jericho as evidence of being justified by works? This would be like um, a huge shift. And, and why is James doing this? I believe James is doing this because he's trying to make a point here about the nature of works that drives home the Reformation point for us. You see, Rahab, up until this point where she has to decide on whether to decide with the people of God or the people of man. Rahab, up to this point in her life, has no evidence of saving faith or works in her life. She would have been seen as a harlot, someone whose life and the mistakes that she has made, let alone from being called holy, just being called good in the society that she was in. One could look at all of the weight of the works in her life and see someone who could have never even been close to the shred of righteousness that God would have required. And yet, what do we see in her story? As she believes in God, and she recognizes that judgment will be upon her if she does not believe. And so this faith leads her to protect the spies of the people of God. And leads her and her family to be saved. And by the way, that her lineage, her line would be connected to the line of Christ himself, our Savior. Do you know what this means for us? God's community brings in God's people, anyone who would repent and believe and draw them in, no matter what you have done, no matter the life that you have lived, no matter what works that you think that you have failed to lift up to, 
You have received grace by the hands of Christ and that he has clothed you in righteousness and power and that your life now is not spent trying to continually make up for those bad things that you've done in the past, but now you live a new life that you've been given by God to walk in faithfulness and truth, knowing that the best is yet to come because you are a new creation in Christ. Church, how many of you need to hear this today? How much more should we yearn and strive to see the example of Rahab and apply it to us? You see, from the Abrahams to the Rahabs to everyone in between, the comfort that comes from the good news of Jesus is that God is working faith in you and that it will not remain stagnant. It will not remain unfertile. When you face unspeakable difficulties and tragedies and sacrifices, God is placing true faith that works through the storms and the waves that you will face. When you feel as your strength has fallen, you can take comfort in knowing that your justification comes in through the righteousness by God's work in your life. Not some vague confidence of your own ability. When we look past the contronyms of life, we will realize the truth of what God's, um, of what remains wholly powerful within us. That true faith leads to God's work in us. And that he receives the glory for the life that we have in him as the body of Christ. And I am so literally serious about this. And I hope that it literally blows your mind this week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we hold on to a a living and active faith, that we don't just hold on to a faith that thinks the right things, that proclaims the right things, Lord, as important as that is, but that we do the right things, not because of our works, but because of the work of God in us, that we rely on the, the faithfulness of Christ, that we rely on in faith alone, the justifying work that we are declared righteous because of Jesus' blood. Father, we thank you for giving us this time of reflection in your word. We pray that we would now, now go from here and not just think right things, but do right things. In Jesus' name.